Welcome to the Unlicensed Podcast. I am Caleb. We've got Tassos is here as always. Hey, what's up? And this week, very exciting. We have not one, not two, but three guests this week. Three. It is crazy, y'all. <laughs> so we're joined to, uh, this week with uh, Jimmy Schaeffler from the Carmel Group, Mike Windy from Wispa, and a return guest, very special badge of honor, I suppose, uh, Matt Larson from Vista <laughs> So appreciate you guys taking all this time. Um, right before we uh, get into it, just toss us, give the good people out there their call to action. Absolutely. Don't forget to like, listen, or subscribe to our channel right here on YouTube or anywhere you download your audio podcasts like Apple, Google, or Spotify. All right, guys. So like I said, this is kind of a special episode. We're trying something new here with a, a multi-guest type of setup. So really what we're doing here is right before Wisp America, we thought we would get together and talk with these guys uh, about a project that they're working on. Carmel Group and Wispa, uh, Matt, of course, is working together with this project to talk about the, what they call the Headwinds Project. Um, so really, without me running my mouth too much, let's just kind of hop into it. I guess, Jimmy, uh, if you'd like to go ahead and sort of introduce the concept of what we're working with, what we're doing, uh, then we'll kind of hop around and go from there and just kind of an open, organic kind of conversation. Thanks, Caleb. So the Carmel Group was approached within the last 10 years for a couple of reports, and that led recently in the fourth quarter of last year to talk about 10 case studies that we would do of seven WISPA operators and three WISPA vendors. And the idea or the why of that was basically because the U.S. broadband industry is at a critical point, and the study addresses the nation's broadband industry's policy concerns as best seen through the lens of its main stakeholders. What this accomplishes is we're trying to get to the truth of these various policy concerns. We're trying to get some education out there. <clears throat> and of course, part of that is an understanding, a deeper understanding of all these things. The participants are basically four parties. Uh, one is WISPA. Two is the eight or seven case study operators. Another one is the three study vendors. And the last is the Carmel Group. The timing is that we wish to get this out before WISP America, which again, a plug for WISPA's really important annual get togethers, which I fully support, is WISPA America. And that starts March 4th in Oklahoma City. And so in other words, this will be unveiled by that time and we will also be doing a session on that on March 6th, Wednesday at 8 in the morning. Uh, as to a special note here, and this is completely unsolicited by our sponsor of this telecast, but I did want to make clear that RF Elements has offered to do the graphics for this without charge, and we are extremely grateful for that. I think it's another indication of what I've seen for the last 10 years, and again, completely unsolicited, and that is Tassos and his team stepping up to support the industry. What are the key issues? Well, the importance of funding, I think, is critically important, and I hope Matt can talk to that, and I know Mike can talk to that quite a bit. And we cover some other issues, for example, competition, labor, construction, taxation, Buy America, Build America, State Matters, Spectrum, Pricing, Labeling, Environmental, and Serving the Impoverished Issues. And with that, I will turn it back over to either Caleb or Tassos, or maybe Mike has a comment or two. Yeah, let me jump in. I mean, we're facing a lot of change here, and in the industry technologically, through policy, through the economy, um, our services now especially since the pandemic, have never been more needed. We're seeing tremendous growth, but there is a tremendous reliance uh, of the government to ensure that telecommunications and broadband communications can be used by all Americans. And so we've seen uh, a flood of money to close the gap. Several millions of Americans still do not have broadband, adequate broadband. And so we're going through the beginning stage of about $42 billion of this money hitting the street and helping reach about 7 million locations that didn't have broadband before. But this has caused a lot of uh, turmoil, 
Uh, we're in a pivot technologically on top of it. And um, our companies uh, are, are there serving that last mile, uh, but faced with these challenges. Uh, we are looking to get, it's, it's a culture of opportunity that we're trying to promote here. And BEAD, in particular, the NTIA's programs, which is sort of the, 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 the basis of this paper, this study, um, is, is, uh, is a massive program that is going to cause uh, a shift in our industry. Uh, n not necessarily a bad shift, but we're hoping to help the NTIA in the States uh, invite our companies in, create a process that allows our companies to uh, serve that last mile and not be overbuilt. And so Jimmy's paper and Matt uh, as one of the human faces of of the bead experiment and this this massive deployment experiment by the policymakers, um, this is what that paper is about, showing the challenges and then the opportunities and how people are meeting that that new landscape that we're seeing. And Matt's a perfect example of that being agile and and going and doing everything it takes to to reach that customer. Okay, very good. So you know, from from an operator's perspective, you know, going to Wisp America, kind of reviewing, you know, what this is. They're, they they have busy schedules, right? And we we know that it's a crazy time. So they're like, huh, this this report seems kind of interesting. Not real sure what it is. You know, oh, it's Wispa talking. You know, definitely a lot of, of Wispa conversations going on. So I guess, Mike, you know, just kind of a quick sort of bullet point summary. As an operator, what would I expect to learn or, or take from this information set? that you guys are talking about doing uh, at the show. Yeah, so, I mean, we're showing how people see BEAD, how people are reacting to BEAD, and the deployment dollars that are coming down for the government. Their tactics of seeing the opportunity and, 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 and using that to grow. And, and that's what these, these, these panels and this story is about, this, this uh, paper that Jimmy's put together. And again, what we're using stories like Matt Elizabeth Bowles, uh, others that are are showing the the financial where to get the uh, financial wherewithal, how to minimize some of the burdens in in process, how to um, uh, 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 deal with the fiber uh, priority that is in bead, and we're seeing that through more and more policy too. Um, technologically, what it costs to build these things, uh, a, a a person that comes to our panel at Wisp America. We'll see others who are similarly situated and go, look, I think I can do this too. And that's kind of what I hope we get uh, out of this. We want our members to participate. We want them to believe they can participate and then actually do so. It's, uh, it'll be on the state level, but these are Matt and others are the human face of that, that success story of seeing the challenge and seeing the opportunity and taking it. Okay. Caleb, Very if cool. I may... Yeah, sure. Let me add this real quick from an article I just wrote for a publication called WIS Magazine. As a whole, these 10 headwinds case studies have revealed a unified theme for 2024. Revision of the National Telecommunications and Information Agency's May 2022 Broadband Equity Access and Deployment or BEAD Program Notice of Funding Opportunity to include broadband service delivered entirely using unlicensed spectrum in its definition of quote unquote, reliable broadband service. And let me just repeat those last few words. To include broadband service delivered entirely using unlicensed spectrum in its definition of reliable broadband service. That's the point of the paper. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a, a very important part. Um, you know, I've been very vocal about it and, and I know a lot of WISPs uh, have really put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into their networks. But I, I always talk about, uh, you know, COVID, right? And, you know, there there was that point where uh, the industry, you know, our industry uh, really stepped up and put all their hard-earned dollars out to build these networks to get internet to the underserved. Uh, and it was all done with unlicensed. Uh, and like I said, if, if anything proves, you know, if anything's going to prove that unlicensed is reliable, I think, I think a case study white paper really needs to be done on the industry as well on how that was achieved, you know, not only without government funding, um, 
but also with, again, unlicensed uh, and, you know, it was really small wisps, you know, for the most part, really picking it up and, and doing their part. I mean, they're the true patriots uh, of this industry. And small wisps taking the risk. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, uh, unlicensed needs to be a big part of this and a, and a story needs to be told about this. Very interesting. So I guess Matt, um, you know, as uh, as they've said, you're the human face of this project, I suppose. So you know, very handsome face that is, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, this is a topic. <laughs> this is a topic. You know, you've you've spoken at length about in the past for sure. Um, you know, we've spoken about it on our podcast. So I guess from your perspective. You know, as the message has changed, like there's so much has, you know, changed over the last year, year and a half or or since we talked to you last. But from your perspective, you know, where have you seen the challenges evolve? Where have you seen sort of the responses evolve uh, from the operator space, uh, from the education, the local government space? I know that's something you're very passionate about and so on. So, you know, where do you see these changes you know, in the, in the, the near distant term, but also where do you think it's going in the future term? Well, you know, I'm not quite as excited about bead. I think as a lot of people are, um, I think it's important not just to kind of figure out where the money is going to go to help resolve the problems, but also how to keep money from going to the parties that are not going to solve the problems. Yep. And that's what we've run into in most of these bigger government, uh, subsidy projects so far is uh we've seen lots and lots of money poured into companies that haven't really delivered on what they were supposed to i give you an example we were looking at uh so nebraska has its own universal service fund like a little tiny version of the national one and uh we did some research into it and found that 750 million dollars has come out of the state usf fund since i think 2004 and with that kind of money, you would think that there would be fiber almost everywhere in Nebraska. Yep. And there's lots of opportunities for, for companies like mine to go out and, and be successful because that money didn't go towards that. And the problem I see is bead is kind of more of the same, especially with the current, the way it's currently set up, the requirements for, uh, the letter of credit. Uh, which has been relieved somewhat, but that's still that's still a fairly big concern for smaller operators. But the combination of the requirement for the line, letter of credit, um, the preference towards fiber, and then the preference for towards the use of licensed spectrum wireless, is that pretty much says big player all over yeah. it. Amen. Now, yep. There are there are a few wisps out there that have scaled to the size where uh, they have access to a lot of funding. Go out and do that, um, and that's great. But I think for the majority of the wireless ISP operators out there, uh, it's it's kind of unobtainium uh, to get there. So I think it's important to both you know try and figure out how to open open it up so we can participate in the areas where we can make the most difference. Um, you know, David Zumwalt referred to WISPs as like the first responders uh, of the digital divide, the guys that rush in to put it, put the fire out. Uh, and then, you know, but it's almost like there's the expression, expectation where the guys are going to put the fire out. And then somebody else is going to come in and build the act, you know, rebuild the actual infrastructure, which I think is kind of BS, you know, because companies like mine, I've been in business for 20 years. And at a certain point, I thought, oh, I'll probably run it for five years and then sell out. And, you know, and then things just kept getting better and better. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I've kind of gotten to the point where I figured out what I'm doing. If I've lasted 20 years, probably <laughs> nobody's going to kill me. So I, there's, I'm not the only one. There's a lot of operators out there. When I, the, the things that really favor WISPs, unlicensed spectrum has a low hurdle to get into. So you don't have that blockage where like the fixed wireless guys are the only ones have access to licensed spectrum um for the most part i'm not i'm talking about you know like license by rule and that sort of thing we obviously have some new options that are available to us now that we can do a lot with but their wisps are kind of like a regulatory bypass so we've started building fiber and we have quite a bit of fiber out there um but it has it's it's so different 
you know, you're talking about long ROIs. You're talking about having to commit a lot of cash to go out and do that. Uh, you're talking about a long time to deploy. You know, we can put advanced wireless up. They'll serve 500 meg. You know, it takes us about three to four days to put that up on a tower. Um, for us to build, we built a small town and it took us about almost a year from start to finish. When we actually got into construction, it took about four or five months. Um, if you're talking about rural areas, that just stretches out on and on and on and on. So I think the biggest difference is, you know, fixed wireless using unlicensed spectrum can bypass all these hurdles to go out and act quickly and get people service. And that's what I think is really important to consider uh, when we're looking at trying to resolve these digital divide issues. Let's put out the fire and then also have it set up so that those of us that went out and put out the fire could be part of the process for, you know, building that infrastructure. And I know that's the target I'm trying to get to is to be at the point where, uh, you know, we can continue to, to build on this customer base that we built over the last 20 years and, and go out and continue to, to succeed and prosper in our area. 100%. I mean, I think we're all right there with you. The majority yep. of operators are, are definitely in agreement, you know, and it brings up a point, which I don't think really gets covered that much, but is definitely a potential future issue is sort of the sustainability of uh, a lot of these new sort of upstart, you know, fiber-based companies and stuff, you know, built when you, when you're spending OPM and you're, you know, really getting out there shuffling, trying to get stuff done in a hurry. There's a lot of slapdash construction, mismanagement, so on and so forth. You know, I think this has been covered a bit, but then you're going to be standing up these companies that, you know, these are all very sort of sh- short vision viewpoint kind of perspectives, right? It's not outfits that are like, we're going to be here for the next 20 some odd years. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on, on the, the turnover and the sustainability of these new sort of upstarts? And then what happens when they put all these millions into the ground and then two to three years from now, you know, it's all gone and everyone's left town. The carnies are gone. And now these people are effectively left unserved again. And I, I that smells like opportunity to me. And I, I know I, I've done my share of, uh, we've done acquisitions of lots of small providers. Uh, so we have a little bit of experience kind of doing, doing rehab work. So somebody goes in and builds fiber and they can't figure out how to cash flow it. Yeah, I'll be happy to figure out how to make that work at, you know, 10 or 15 cents on the dollar for what it costs to build. And if somebody thinks I'm crazy, that that's how Zayo got into this business. Um, Zaya went around, uh, they were in existence, but, uh, the first round of, uh, stimulus projects, there were a lot of fibers that went out and fiber networks were constructed, didn't work out. And Zayo came in and picked them up for pennies. It, equivalently speaking, um, we have places where we're on, uh, in Colorado is a network called Eagle net that was federally subsidized. And construction started and stalled out about a third of the way through. Uh, they just built the easy parts. They didn't build the hard parts. And Zayo came in and bought it for a fraction of what was spent on the construction. So I think there's going to be lots of examples of that. Uh, you know, and it's it's going to be a shame that uh, you know so much government money, you know, taxpayer money, is going to be wasted on projects that aren't economically sustainable. So. That's, I know the one thing we look at, uh, any of the projects that we take on any of these programs, they have to make sense for us because there are certain things. Some of these programs have a certain amount of hooks or requirements into them that just make them, it's like a poison pill. Uh, you, you don't want to have it. One of the things I really value, you know, I, I have in our core values is we adapt and change and that we value the ability to be nimble. You know, that's the thing that unlicensed fixed wireless really lets you do is you don't have to follow this path. If there's customers, if there's demand somewhere and you can figure out how to get there, you go and you get the customers. Whereas so much of this stuff is chasing policy goals or chasing something that a bunch of lobbyists basically put together and not the real problems of the customer. So I would much rather, you know, turn away from certain government programs, no matter what the money is, 
in order to keep that flexibility. Because if somebody does take it, they're setting themselves up for a lot of potential failure there. No, 100%. No, I just wanted to add there. I mean, part of the problem with BEAD and the NTIA and the whole progeny of these massive deployment programs is that they've made a process that is so airtight to prevent the BTOP failure that happened at the in you know Obama era, 2009. Can you name one BTOP program? Can you name one success? And so they've overcompensated, creating all these other hurdles, all these other policy sort of ancillary policy uh, initiatives that's not really in the, the, the statutes themselves, but have been imposed by the administrators um, to you know ensure success. Uh, but just the framework itself is going to guarantee that people are going to not be covered, especially especially the, the prioritization of fiber. It doesn't have to be. That's not in the initial uh, guiding legislation. It's something that was imposed in bead by NTIA. Fiber is a great thing. Matt uses it. More and more of our members use it. It's part of the toolbox, but that wasn't part of the law. It was tech neutrality. Uh, but the NTIA and its, uh, I, I guess, search to be perfect and to uh, hermetically seal itself from failure has created the very instances that they will fail unless they allow the states the flexibility to choose what's right for the job, uh, unlicensed wireless, any types of wireless. Some states have even tried to ban all wireless. So, um, you know, this is this is a problem. I call it an unforced error, something that we didn't have to have. And now the the in the search for perfection, they're letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Ultimately, these programs are designed to do one thing, to get people online, the unserved. It's not about future proof. It's not about uh, uh, subsidizing any certain technology. Those, you know, technology neutrality has served us well for uh, 75 years. So why stop now? Uh, the program is, again, a lot of these are these unforced errors um, that <laughs> for Matt, it might prove some opportunity and others when these programs go by the wayside. But when you're talking about the very beginning, um, these, this fiber in the ground that all of a sudden the carny goes and, you know, who's there to pick it up? Who's there to serve? No, those are all great points, and I think it really points to the the the, the poison pill or the golden handcuffs or, or whatever you want to refer to it as. And we've seen them with so many other projects as well, right? I mean, how many art off you know calf product projects are still sort of hung up because of onerous requirements and everything else? So, you know, in the space out there, there's what what's fair, what should happen, and really what is, right? So if you decide that you're going to play in the space, you must be known that you're potentially losing a lot of your flexibility. If you choose not to, you have to know that there will be other players in this space, and you have to think about, you know, what are your strategies, backup plans, and stuff like that. I think as Matt said, there's going to be a lot of failures. There's going to be a lot of opportunities. Now, what those opportunities look like, are they good, bad, sketchy? I mean, who really knows, right? And like, you think about the deployment timelines, we're talking years and years, right? Five years ago, this wasn't a thing. Four years ago, almost to the date, we're like, hey man, somebody's got a sniffle, everything's cool. And then six months later, the world is ended. So, you know, it's, it's kind of hard when you're dealing with this much government uh, help. Uh, on these sort of long-term timelines when traditionally the space says to be really flexible. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. I think really keeping your eyes open for opportunities, um, I think is going to be super important to stay relative in this space and compete and survive. Caleb, just one more point, building on what Mike said, we as a society, we as a people, our history does not support the idea of monopolies. And essentially what, the current program favors is so much fiber and so little of the other competitors. And what we're finding here through this report is that the best combination is a more open marketplace where not just fiber, but fixed wireless and even other forms of delivery are open to the marketplace to see which one ends up standing the best and which one ends up serving a particular audience in a particular situation. 
because fiber will not serve everyone and it will not serve as many people as they want it to serve well. Sure. I mean, you know, we, we're all of the, the same mindset here. And I think any, you know, rational, sane person would listen to these points and, you know, come to the same conclusion, right? Um, maybe, I don't know who would be best to answer this, but so why why is it so difficult to get this point across to the those decision makers uh, if it seems so, like, duh to us that, you know, the hybrid approach uh, you know, unlicensed, uh, clearly has worked in the past and is stable. All these points. Why is it so difficult to get these people to understand that and, and change things? So I think part of that, you have to go back and look at the money yeah. and, and where that is. So there's a, there's something I like to call the vortex. And there's yeah. this vortex of, there's like politicians and consultants and vendors and they just kind of go around in a circle sucking money out of different things. So one of the, a couple of the things that I brought up, the three things I brought up, the letter credit, license spectrum, and fiber. And it all has to do with money. Uh, letter credit is basically to block out small operators from causing disruption. And it's also a giant giveaway to the financial institutions. Because if you look at the cost of maintaining a letter of credit, you're they're, they're basically getting 10% of your project for doing that. So you take 10% right off the top there as the handout to the big banks or to the financial industry to help make this happen. So license spectrum is very dependent on exclusivity. And the amount of exclusivity of that spectrum is in the, the value is inversely proportional. So the more exclusive spectrum is, the more valuable it is. So you have to have that exclusivity and be able to do something of higher use that's going to generate more revenue for that spectrum to maintain its value. You know, unlicensed like is kind of like throwing a, you know, throwing a grenade in the middle of that because we now have unlicensed platforms that will outperform licensed spectrum platforms Yep, uh, on the fixed wireless side. So that's... That's, that's a scary proposition, but it's also an important weapon that we have as unlicensed operators. And the third thing is fiber. So this is something really interesting because we're right in the middle of kind of laying out our plans for the year. And yeah, we're, we're going to be spending some money building fiber, but we're going to spend almost the equivalent amount on upgrading a lot of our facilities to advanced wireless. It's going to be capable of 500 meg or gigabit speeds to end users. And we're going to spend about the same amount of money on both, but the fiber projects are probably going to be able to hit a maximum of, I don't know, probably 1200 customers and the same amount of money spent upgrading our, uh, fixed wireless infrastructure is going to be able to hit 12,000 potential customers. So there's a, there's a fairly big difference there in the amount of coverage that we can build and the amount of area we can cover with that. Uh, so that's huge. And then the other side is fiber networks typically have this super high valuation. So, yeah. you know, right now the valuation is like, if you're running, you know, say, uh, you know, unlicensed wireless network that can maybe hit a hundred bag typically to customers, that's probably going to be five to seven times EBITDA is the valuation. Um, if you're talking about a fiber network, that's somewhere between 20 and 30 times EBITDA just because it's fiber. So that's why the big push for fiber, because if you can get paid to put in, put the stuff in the ground, then when you go to sell it, you have a much higher valuation. Yep. And right now there is this flood of private equity is trying to go out and buy broadband providers. And the goal of private equity, I heard this at a conference a couple of weeks ago, is they want to triple their money within five years. That involves building a bunch of fiber and putting a bunch of people on it uh, and hopefully building the fiber with uh, government subsidy and then flipping it to make the money on it. Um, in doing so, a lot of times creating a monopolistic environment. But the thing is great is fixed wireless breaks that monopolistic environment. And the part that I'm really encouraged by 
is the fact that if you go back and look over the last two years, um, fixed wireless is the dominant new growth in broadband. You know, go back and look at Comcast and Charter's numbers for the fourth quarter. They're losing broadband subs. Um, and the fiber guys can claim, oh, they're getting overbuilt by fiber. No, the majority of the customer loss they're having is going to the fixed wireless guys, even though a lot of that is Verizon and T-Mobile. Um, that shows that customers don't care where it comes from. And here's the other thing we found out that I thought was kind of interesting. We basically unified our pricing. So we have the same prices. We've, we've got three residential prices for our end users and they don't change. The speeds change if they're on basic, you know, up to 100 meg unlicensed. If we have our advanced stuff, you know, it's up to 500. If they're on fiber, then it's up to gig, but it's all the same pricing. So what's interesting about that is basically now the customer's cash flow the same, whether it's fiber or wireless. There's general, there's basically no difference in the cash flow side. So actually running the business doesn't matter whether you got fiber or fixed wireless, they all operate the same. It's all about valuation. So that was a very long way to getting back to money is what's behind it. And it's fiber having much more perceived value, but it turns out fixed wireless actually has much more operational value um, in the monthly cash flow. So that's where that's, I think, part of the driving factor of why you keep seeing this push uh, towards more fiber and even the use of license spectrum. I, I think also to jump on Matt here, I think it's an issue of control. And that control is built into the 1934 Act. I mean, we have almost 100 years of regulation. Um, Matt talks about regulatory bypass and the success that WISPs have had facing very little regulation until the past five or so years. Now uh, companies are getting hooked on subsidies control. We see the open internet rules, the common carrier proposals that will probably go into effect at the end of this year, more control. In common carrier regulation, uh, there are 50 plus shalls. <laughs> Companies shall do something directed by the government. Uh, and if you do not, you do not get the uh, uh, privilege of operating your territory. We see this with digital discrimination order Again, control uh, the uh, security uh, stuff, CPNI uh, issues that that they're trying to impose and new obligations, the mapping costs. Um, and you know, I think this present um, administration and what we see regulatorily among many states are re are sort of repealing or coming back on the six decades that deregulatory arc, that created and allowed for the internet to explode. And I think companies like Matt and others, they see as either, are you with us or are you against us? And uh, if you're with us, then we need to control you. If you're against us, um, then we don't need you because you're important. And you can just put any, any kind of in parentheses what that importance is. I, I believe fundamentally, it's 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 an act of control is what we're seeing here with with all this money coming through with all the new regulation, and I think that there is a belief that they've given up on the mindset of that deregulatory arc, the innate innovative spirit of companies like Matt, and what's happening in uh, San Jose and Silicon Valley here in America, which birthed the internet, that happened because of this, and now they're turning that back. Um, they don't like a lot of players that they can't control. Caleb, one thing that this study has pointed out over and over again, and it gets to the core of who we are as a people and who we are as a country. We are a country of innovation. And innovation supports the idea of big picture, lots of players, lots of ideas in the mix. And Long ago, the Carmel Group, as we began working with the WISPA industry, we focused in the beginning on wireless. But we realized early on there was another phrase that was critically important that built in the real future of the industry and this idea of in innovation. And that was the idea of hybrid fiber wireless. 
and the idea that you bring in more than just one technology and you invite a better long-term solution with a broader marketplace of ideas and technology and participants. And when you focus so much emphasis and money and legislation into just fiber, you take away that American ideal. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, in the end, it boils down to it. I mean, we're dealing with politicians. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, motivate a politician, and most of it's power, money, so on and so forth. I mean, there's a lot of people. I mean, most of them are people. Most of them, right? Some are monsters. But, you know, I personally believe there is an entire generation of young politicians that look at this whole digital divide closure, uh, and so on and so forth as the main stepping stool to start building your long-term careers, right? Because infrastructure projects are, are sexy to pitch, but in the grand scheme of things, we fixed 18,000 miles of road. That's not a sexy pitch, right? It's not, you know, we fixed some bridges. We're like, well, yeah, you should fix the bridges. That's your jobs, idiots. So you end up in a situation where they're like, hey, if we can build this whole thing on, we did this to help the people bridge the digital divide, blah, 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 and got them on the internet, poverty, you know, rural areas, so on and so forth. Like that makes a really good pitch, right? So like, all right, so how do I make this be successful? What's the current state of the art? And you have a lot of big money legislators saying, Hey, you, you have, you need a tool. This tool is fiber and it looks like this hammer. And now you have one tool to fix everything. And they're like, cool. Cause I don't understand anything else. Cause I'm just a politician trying to do my thing. And that's how you end up with a very sort of myopic view as to what fixes the future. And it kind of boils down to the same, like in the corporate world, you know, no one gets fired for using, you know, for buying Cisco, right? Because you're like, Hey, even if the projects failed, you're like, well, I relied on the state of the art to get this done. This was not my fault as a politician it was individual failure down and that takes away the desire to try something wild and risky for a large majority of them so i think you know there's a lot of money there's a lot of control this that and the other but it's also the human nature of someone that's like hey i need this to be successful because 10 years from now i'm going to run for senate the governor president whatever else you know and i'm going to go with the one tool that i know of so you know, it's ignorance, whether it's willful or not, could be debated, but I think it's just a big part of it. But they're going to fail with this model. Who, I mean, a model that uh, actually is doomed to one choice, one choice. When has that ever worked? So they can choose to not do that model. And um, I mean, the state's are already saying we don't have, it's just, it's just money. There's, there's just not enough money to do what the NTIA and other of these programs want to do with the framework of choosing one technology to do it. And um, I mean, ultimately, we believe that states are going to come to their senses. Many already are saying, you don't have enough money to do this. Um, and that's not the goal. The goal is to get all online, not to impose a single technology. All to, I mean, whoever heard of saying that you're going to get a better system by eliminating it to only one choice? Uh, we hope that policymakers will see that. They, they've already caused a distortion in the market. You can see people are holding back on purchases. Yep. AT&T the other day said, oh, well, you know, we're waiting for this bead money to come uh, because, or, you know, we were going to go in there organically anyway. That These are the markets we're going to go to first. Uh, so they've already caused a year and a half of stall. Uh, and then we have five years of building with money that's finite. Uh, with a framework that limits it to essentially one choice and then the exception for unlicensed where there's extreme high cost, uh, uh, extreme high cost threshold. It's it's not a system that can work. We, we believe ultimately most policymakers will come over and say, what's the right tool for the job? And, you know, use the Matt Larson model to, to grow. I, I work with a, I've been a member of a group called BITAG. It's a broadband infrastructure technology advisory group. And that is a group that puts together white papers and guidance on complicated technical issues. And <clears throat> we just released a paper about broadband technologies a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's available at the website is BITAG, B-I-T-A-G dot org. And the conclusion right there is that 
right tool for the right job. It advocates a technology neutral. Now that is not a paper written by a fiber lobbyist or one of the big companies that is deploying fiber. That BITAG is put together of multiple industry members from all different, all different sizes, all different types of companies. And I think the paper is a fantastic piece of work. It's a powerful weapon. Um, Mike, you guys have a job to do. You need to put the, you need to put that paper in the hands of every staffer on the Hill and make sure that they have it and, you know, attach a candy bar or something to it to get the attention to get them to read it. Some skills, a whisper bar. <laughs> A lot, a lot of these, a lot of these politicians, they may not understand it, but they've got staffers that do. And from the limited time I spent Washington D.C., we need to get them on board. So the best thing we could possibly do is put that paper out there and start to work on this. I think there is a non-zero chance that Bead completely falls apart if we end up with a Republican administration next year. As soon as the Democrats took over, Ardoff kind of became a giant mess, and. I could see the same thing happening with Bede, which turns into chaos. And you know what the guy from Game of Thrones said about chaos? Chaos is a ladder to climb out and do things, especially if you're nimble and have the ability to uh, work around some of the restrictions. But I think we really need to be pushing that paper, uh, get it out there, make sure its staffers know that, you know, hey, like I said, the, the bits flow, whether they come in on fiber, whether they come in on wireless, they come into the house. I know personally, I had, I moved into a new house and we had had gig fiber here. And one day I put up one of our wireless radios, not even a new one, one of our old ones that only does up to a hundred meg and flip the gateway to see if anybody noticed. Nobody nope. knows the difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm talking, exactly. I'm talking to you on it right now. I say yep. right before it probably drops out because somebody <laughs> hang out. In it, in it, in it. Jinx, jinx. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> But I, I mean, I've been, I've been using this. I, this is, this is my fifth year living at this house with the same radio up here. And I, I've been, everything works fine. You know, the bits flow fine from a business point of view, the same money flows through it. So why would we waste the money on this? I think it makes a lot more sense. We should, we should have had an infrastructure bank set up. We should have had usable loan guarantee programs that North Dakota has that. North Dakota has a state infrastructure bank and Telephone companies and broadband providers were able to borrow from the infrastructure bank, the state infrastructure bank. Consequently, North Dakota has the highest percentage of gig fiber. And it's not because it's it's because the investment facility was made available. I mean, I'm having a hell of a time trying to go out and borrow, you know, a couple million dollars to do fiber construction with local banks. Yep. And if there was a loan guarantee program that they knew that they would they would not be completely out if I go under, then I would have been doing this stuff 10 years ago. So that's, that's, a, that's the sort of thing we should have. And it needs to be less complicated with fewer triggers on it and set up to deal with smaller amounts. Like if you go to use reconnect or any of these RUS programs, if you aren't doing a $10 million project, you might as well not even bother because the paperwork burden is so heavy. And then when you get done, it puts so many restrictions on what you can do and how you can run your company. And if you look to sell or anything, you're, you're, you've got all those encumbrances. That's the poison pill in there. But we need something that, that you know, promotes solutions that can be implemented in a shorter period of time and cover people and resolve the problem. You know, let's fix the people that are unserved first, then work on the underserved people. And then at some point they're going to change the standard. Then everybody's going to be un underserved again. And then they're going to have to throw more money at it. This deal about this being a generational thing, it needs to be future-proof. Oh, what BS. The only thing that's future-proof is that companies are going to continue asking the government for money. Yep. That's future-proof. And the government so, loves spending it. So uh -huh. yeah, it's, it'll be time to reshuffle the deck and, and reclassify what's the, the hottest new thing, right? So, And you know, that's the thing about doing infrastructure bank type stuff. Government could potentially make money on it. You put the money out there, and even if you put it out at a low interest rate, it it goes to build infrastructure. And this that's an idea that should go way beyond uh, that should go beyond just broadband. We've got all kinds of situations where we should be looking at that, and we just we just aren't. So we need to get some more economists that actually understand you know the real world out there instead of we've got 
Uh, I'm going to throw my bias out there. We've got too many Ivy Leaguer economists that have been studying this stuff at a policy level that have never run a damn business and don't understand how this stuff works out in the real world that we, we've got to figure out how to break that cycle. There, I'm off the soapbox now. Um, to my own to my own support and representation, I am not an Ivy Leaguer. I went to the University of California, Berkeley, and proud of it. But one thing I wanted to make a point and a follow-up on Matt's point, and that is future, po- future proof. F- we have found over and over again, and it's not just the participants talking, it's the follow-up study and the research. Fiber is not, as it's presented right now by this administration, future-proof. Fut- the closest thing to future-proof is hybrid fiber wireless. But ideally, it even goes beyond that. There are other technologies that will come into this mix and really make it future-proof. So what I'm getting to, future-proof is innovation. It is not locking yourself into one square that says fiber and fiber only. Yeah, definitely. So I have a question for you, Matt. I mean, so, you know, we talked about, or Mike mentioned kind of the, the stall that happened because people were thinking about going into areas, building it out. Uh, then they said, well, the government might give me money for the same area, so let me not do it now and wait. And we hear this from uh, a lot of operators out there, and it's not just about the bead money, but it's the technology that's changing. There's a lot of stall in the build-outs right now because technology is changing. They don't know what technology they're going to use. And then on top of that, they're worried if they use, let's say, a new technology that's somehow uh, not being protected, they're going to get overbuilt, right? What is your kind of guidance and what would you tell, uh, let's say, smaller or younger operators uh, what to do if, if, they're, if they're stuck in this, well, I don't want to build it because I'll get either overbuilt or uh, you know, te- technology might change tomorrow and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take that risk right now or something like that. One of the things I think we get, you know, if you're going to go out and build your own broadband network, you're inherently a technologist at heart. What did you guys get into it for? You love the technology, right? Tasa, yep. Caleb, I 100%. know you guys, you guys are just like geeks at heart. So that that's great, but I think it's also one of our detriments. Sometimes we get so focused on, oh, we want to be the best. We want to do this. We want to do that. And I think there's there's some benefit to be said. There's some value in the idea of building something that's good enough, and taking some of that focus. You know, fiber is like you know the geek dream. It's like, man, I got unlimited bandwidth. You know, I can do anything I want here. But it, there's such a high cost to get there, and there are other ways to innovate. And I think one of the big ones is, you know, somebody that's out there in business right now is probably in business because there was a demand. You know, I didn't go out. My, my initial plan when I started my business was not to go out and cover 50,000 square miles, parts of three states. It was, I want to get some better internet service out to out to people out there. And there's a demand. And as we built out, you know, we went to the places where there was demand. There's very few places that we ever went to where we didn't have pretty strong demand. And a lot of times it was, you know, because of an acquisition or whatever, we picked up some, some customers and markets that maybe already had been overbuilt or whatever. But what makes a difference is respecting the customer. And that's something I think is really important because if you have a customer right now and you're taking care of that customer, for the most part, they're probably not going to leave. And I'm looking at that right now. We have, we have a half a percent churn rate. Industry average is like, I believe 1.5 to 2% a month worth of churn with the cable operators um, and DSL and even the the cellular fixed wireless. They have high churn rates. And so if you can keep your churn rate low and take care of your customers, you can survive. And fixed wireless or hybrid fiber fixed wireless doesn't have the same kind of pressure to succeed financially as you know, if a company puts, you know, a few million dollars into a town to build that town, they're going to want to see, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80% of the market by overbuilding it with fiber. And, you know, fixed wireless guy can get by with one or 2% and still be wildly profitable because you don't have the carrying costs. You don't have the initial construction costs. So, um, 
throw out an idea. There is a there is a podcast, the Broadband Bunch. I think that's a fairly popular one in broadband circles. They recently had on a guy from England that was talking about how England now has full fiber to a high percentage of the houses or, or the households, and their penetration rates are very low. And so if you watch the fiber industry guys, everybody's, they're trying to educate people. Oh, people need to know how good fiber is. People know <laughs> all the wonderful things you can do if you have gig fiber to your house. It just enables so many different things. And it's complete BS. All they're doing is trying to pump up the value of the perceived value of fiber. When it turns out fixed wireless, even delivering, even with unlicensed spectrum, can cover 95% of customers' needs. Yep. And the advanced that can do up to 500 meg or gigabit probably covers 99% of customers. So what are the fiber guys doing? They're trying to build a network for the 1%. Yep. I think we, we this is, WISP, we are like the people's network. We are building to the 99%. Yeah, you know, getting them what they need and not trying to tell the customer, oh, you need fiber because this and this and this. How well does it work for companies to tell a customer what they need? If you want to be successful, you need to listen to what the customer wants and give them the best possible service you can at a price that's fair for them and fair for you. And to do that, if you, if you can do that, you will at least maintain a certain amount of success and survivability. No, very well said. And I think that's a viewpoint that a lot of operators already have or should have for sure. So guys, uh, this has been a very fruitful and interesting conversation. I think we could all probably get up here in soapbox, uh, uh, until we ran out of electrons to send back and forth. But I think this is a good opportunity to sort of tie things up here. So, again, real quick, uh, Wisp America, Oklahoma City, March 4th. Uh, if you don't know where that is, uh, Mike, where can they find information about that? Because I don't remember the website. Yeah, wispaevents.org. And that gives you all the information, the agenda, the exhibitors, uh, registration, so uh, go on to that wispaevents.org. Thank you. Caleb, I was just going to say, let me just make a point too that Mike didn't make. The whole website for WISPA has been redesigned. I haven't spent a lot of time on it, but what I've seen already really makes it a much more pleasant experience. So I want to pat Matt on the back, or, or pat Matt on the back, and especially pat Mike on the back for putting the effort into that because it really is a much easier read. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, like I said, we always say it before the shows, uh, drink lots of water, wear comfortable shoes, get out and meet people, talk to other operators. Uh, I don't know, I feel like we've done this like 20 times for conversations, so I won't get too into details, but um, on that note, unless anyone has anything else to say, I think we'll wrap this up. Um, we'll throw the email addresses for you guys up here uh, somewhere. I don't know. Our guys will take care of it. Uh, cause they know what they're doing and I don't. So, uh, on that note, I think we're going to call it. Uh, so until we talk to you guys next time, see you at Wisp America and we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, thanks again. Everybody. Thanks. Big guys. Thank you. Star F yeah. elements. Yeah.